Welcome in. Welcome to 1030 service here at Lindsay Lane North. Whether you're joining in person or online, man, we are thankful to have you with us today. Uh, I was not woken up by my my youth pastor this morning, but I was all but woken up by him. You know how like when your alarm goes off and you have to hit snooze at least once? Like you actually set your alarm earlier so that you can hit snooze one time? Y'all don't feel that way? I feel that way. That's legit for me. That's legit. Um, And in between, in this sacred nine minutes of snooze time, my youth pastor, bing, texts me, and he says something along the lines of, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. You had to attach fellowship to the Cal Pie Bingo, and it's outside, and the weather was terrible. Now we, we can't have it. It's all your fault. And now I'm, he's, he even blamed me for the power outage. All right, so if you had to get ready in the dark, my youth pastor puts that at my doorstep. It is funny how that always happens, our fellowships. If you schedule a fellowship, like if I schedule a fellowship outside, like it's just going to be... It's going to be what it is. It's going to be rainy. So we are actually uh, going to pivot a little bit. Uh, We are going to do kind of a raffle drawing. Sally Petunia is not here. Although my 10-year-old did say that he thought we should bring the cow in the church, which I responded, nah. Uh, And maybe might have hit him in the back of the head uh, when he suggested it, but uh, we are not doing that. Uh, but we are going to do a, a drawing. We will have our fellowship meal in here. We're going to ha- bring the tables in. We've got tables from the men's, uh, men's breakfast that we had yesterday. So please join us immediately after service. We'll get things set up, and then we'll have our fellowship uh, lunch in here, uh, potluck style, and then we have uh, a drawing uh, for the the student ministry uh, as well to see who who wins the hundred dollars. Okay, so uh, so that's going on. So we hope that you participate in that. But I thought y'all'd get a kick at it. My my youth pastor has put it all on me. So I appreciate that, Joseph. It means a lot. All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter nine. We are continuing our series in the Apostle, the the Gospel according to Mark, the Apostle. He's not the Apostle Mark, right? He has given uh, most of his perspective from the Apostle Paul, actually. Last week, we talked about the framework of a follower. See, Jesus has made this transition from large-spectrum ministry, Galilean Hebrew ministry to multitudes, to fans, to now he is focusing on Followers. He is focusing on his disciples and giving enormous clarity into what he is actually up to, what he is doing. He is describing the kingdom of heaven. He's describing the kingdom of God. He is describing what it looks like for him to be Messiah and what it looks like for them to be his followers. Right, He said last week, as we looked at that, we, we talked about how he would fill the role as Messiah. He was the anointed one of heaven. He had already identified himself as such to his disciples. However, however, the Messiah did not mean what they thought it would mean. 
It was not the Messiah as they had learned about it as they grew up, as they had been trained by the rabbis. He was not going to be a military hero, a physical hero, a physical king or ruler, but he would set up a different type of kingdom. It was not in the way that man had predicted. Rather than set up a physical kingdom with Israel as the primary beneficiary, he would set up a spiritual kingdom, not based on birthright, but based on those who would put their faith and their confidence and their trust in him. So anyone that would, whosoever would, respond in faith to Christ as their Lord would enter into the kingdom of heaven. This life would not be the life of privilege. It would not be the life of success and opulence. It would be a life of poverty. It would be a life of subjecting yourself to others. It was a life of servanthood that Jesus, rather than, rather than donning the throne, he would endure the cross. His ministry would look less like a regal king and more like a suffering servant. And we talk about that as if that's not a big ask of his followers. Instead of following this grand physical king with a massive, ever-reaching physical kingdom, you are now adopting the posture of a slave. You're putting your needs below the needs of others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the man that you are following is requiring you to lay down your life instead of picking it up. And so this is no small ask, right? I can remember uh, when we were trying to get back uh, after COVID, you know, COVID had hit, we had been mobile and, you know, we said goodbye to everybody March 8th and little did we know that it would be months before we would see some of, some of each other we would see again, some we haven't seen yet back, right? But it would be months. We didn't know that COVID would happen and would shut us down the next week. And as weeks began to return into months and we began to realize this was not something that was going away anytime soon. I remember some of the conversations we had around church leadership tables. Some of the ideas that we had. Man, some crazy ideas. Easter's coming up, right? You can't have church. You can't have, you can't have Easter without coming to church, right? And I remember when the idea was pitched, hey, this crazy church in Texas did a drive-in service. Maybe we should try that for Easter. And y'all remember... All of the things that we did. Y'all remember, we, we knew we needed to worship together. So we pulled off things like Easter at great expense and great effort to everybody involved. We had an Easter service that Sunday in the parking lot at the main campus, right? I can remember <laughs> deciding that we needed to fellowship as a church family. So I had the brilliant idea, well, we have meetings on Zoom we should do church foyers. Y'all, I still get like muted reminders about the church foyer that began at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. I still get those. I, I probably should just not, but I, I just haven't gotten around to canceling them. But do y'all remember how awkward, some of y'all that were a part of those, do y'all remember how awkward those conversations were? 
I mean, first of all, you got kids going, everybody's muted, somebody's talking, and you're seeing their mouth moving, and they're like, they think they're sharing the world to us, but they ain't sharing nothing, right? And everybody's trying to figure out how to operate Zoom, and we did some crazy stuff, but we knew we had to fellowship, right? We knew that we had to be involved in missions still as the church. COVID has not, had not killed the mission of the church. And I remember when Kevin Ward, our director of missions for the, uh, for the Limestone Baptist Association said, Hey, look, all these schools have all this food and it's going to waste. They're going to throw it away. So he began to mobilize churches to go and spread. We became part of that mobilization effort every single day, taking meals to kids throughout Elkmont, throughout the surrounding areas, right? But we knew that mission had to continue. See, what I've become aware of in, in ministering and pastoring through this time is if your why is big enough, you can answer any question of how or what. If your why is big enough, why are we doing what we're doing? As a church, we needed to worship, so we, so we figured out a way to make it happen. Even if we were amening through honking our horn, it was still, we were there. We could look at each other. We couldn't talk to each other. We could, hey, I see you over there, right? We knew we had to fellowship, so we'd made a way. We knew we had to be a part of mission. Our why was strong enough, so we were able to overcome some of the questions of why and what, or how and what. So this is exactly what Jesus is trying to establish with his disciples. He's trying to give them an understanding of who he is, right? He knows what he's asking them to do, and he's saying, Listen, but the life that I am offering you, though you may not see it now, is worth it is worth it. And this is why. And so today we're going to look at the foundation of a follower. Jesus is going to give them a foundation on which he will build the kingdom of heaven. And that foundation is none other than him himself. I can remember my, our second house was being built and so the reason why I remember it so well is we literally went by there every single day because we were living at my parents' house dreaming. It was, it was fine. We got along, get along great with my parents, but I was still at my parents' house, right, between houses and with kids, and it was just crazy. It was stressful, and so we were really wanting that house to get underway, and I can remember for a long time it just felt like they, they brought dirt in, they smoothed it, and then they brought more dirt in, and then they smoothed that, and they brought more dirt in, and they smoothed that, and then they just moved some stuff around, right? And then they finally build the walls for the foundation, then they pour the concrete, and then it's like, I swear, it took weeks for them to finally get beyond the foundation, right? And then one day, I remember we left, and all they had done is foundation. You saw the little pipe sticking up, like where they had, where they had uh, piped in, but like there was nothing. Nothing there. We went on a, we went to Mobile, to her family's house for like three or four days. We came back and y'all, our house, like entire house was framed. Like it was framed. They, they, man, a prefab house, dude, they, they throw up in a second once they get past the foundation, right? Because why? The foundation's important. The foundation takes time. It's got to cure. It's got to get strong. We got to make sure that the foundation is solid. And then once the foundation is solid, we can build everything else. If the foundation is shaky, then everything else 
will be shaky. Uh, I said yet last week, until we settle in our minds who Jesus is, we will always be unsettled in our obedience to him, right? If we don't settle in our minds who Jesus is, he is the foundation, he's the cornerstone of everything that we have built our lives upon. And if we don't get that right, we will always be marginally committed. Always settling for less than surrender. Uh, John Piper says this, Every sin, every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. To see God, to see Christ for who he is in his glory is the most important thing for us to have as our perspective in life. Every sin flows out of a failure to put God's glory in proper perspective. And so Jesus here in Mark 9 is giving his disciples a glimpse of his glory. Just a glimpse, just a moment in time where they see the glorified Christ. Read with me Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 2. Would you read this with me? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did he ask that? Why did he say that? Well, because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One of three times that God speaks in the ministry of Jesus. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them. But Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. But in true disciple fashion, they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today. May you reveal your glory to us. It has been revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. May that be the foundation of everything that we say and do in this place today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As you read scripture, it's very important to understand the most important thing to God. The most important thing to God in Scripture is not us, it's not his creation, it's not our good, it's not our love, it's not our obedience. All of these things are important, but they are side effects of the most important thing that God is concerned with in Scripture. The most important thing to God as revealed in Scripture is His glory. 
It is the one thing. It is the non-negotiable about God. He is about his glory. And if that strikes you as odd, then you have a very flawed understanding of glory. For me, the glory in myself is dumb because I'm not very glorious. I do very unglorious things often. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. If you ask at the right time, you might can ask one of my neighbors. I do unglorious things. But for a God who is infinitely glorious, who is in charge and sovereign and creator and infinitely good, he is about his glory. His glory is the most important thing to him. And so as a result, as creation, we are to be about his glory. In the Old Testament, the word that is used is kabov. The word in Hebrew literally means to have weight or substance, even burden, that there is, a, there is a weight associated with the presence and glory of God. So much so that Moses would fall at his presence, right? At the burning bush, he would fall down before the weight of the presence of God. We see Isaiah doing it in, in chapter 6. Right, That he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his presence, his weight literally brought him to his knees. And so the glory of God deals with this idea of weight. What it is in our life that we give weight to. You see, you are glorifying something in your life at all times. At all times we live We are glorifying something. God has called us as his creation. And for those that are in Christ especially, as his redeemed, to be reflecting his glory, to give the appropriate weight to who he is in our life. When we get that out of balance, we miss Obedience. We settle for less than God's plan for our life. And so, and so the word way, what do we give sway to in our life? In the New Testament, the word is doxa, where you have probably heard the word doxology, right? Or praise or brilliance or brightness. It deals with this idea of shining, of shining forth. And so when we look at God's glory as one that has weight, that has significance, that has sway in my life, you know, I, I like to wrestle with my kids and they're my boys mostly my daughter I like to snuggle with my boys I like to wrestle with and every now and then we'll get to wrestling and they'll get a little big for their britches right they'll start trying to land some punches or take some cheap shots and at some point during the fight I just have to remind them that they are operating in the wrong weight class Right? I've got a little more lead in my britches than they do, and I can handle whatever they've got, right? Ultimately, yeah, I'll let you have your fun, but ultimately, I'm your daddy, right? You cannot do it on your own. That is what the law tells us. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. God's people wanted, and when they were doing well, they wanted to be righteous. 
God's people were never righteous. Never. They did right things every now and again, but they were never righteous. It always eluded them. What he calls, what Christ did for us, what Christ is showing his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration is he is doing something that is different. He is changing things. He is changing the game. And so this ministry is not a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean Alan's righteous? Man, no. Absolutely not. But Christ is. And his righteousness, his death, his sacrifice is given to me. So he is my righteousness. Though I may not be righteous in myself, on my own, Christ has made me right with God. And so if there is, there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. In your notes, glory used to be veiled. What did they do with God's glory? When God would show his glory, what did he do before he passed by Moses? He put his hand there. He hid Moses from his presence so he couldn't see him, right? What happened in the temple? The temple had all of these divisions and all of these splits to keep people out because you couldn't be around the presence of God and live. It was a ministry of death, right? If you got around the presence of God, remember the story of the dude that the, the Ark of the Covenant is about to hit the ground and he stops it and he dies? Like, that's harsh. But that's what God's presence was about then. And so God's glory used to be veiled. It used to be separated. It used to be taken away from people, hidden from people. But now... It is unveiled through Christ. What the disciples see is the first glimpse of the revealed Christ, the glory of Christ. Not the glory that leads to death, but the glory that leads to life. So that they would place their faith, their confidence, their trust in him, and he would provide salvation from that death. This is what we see. Secondly, Jesus isn't just different. The law and the prophets are made different. The law and the prophets are different. They're changed. Right? Listen to what it says, Mark 9, 4 through 6. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke tells us they were talking about his departure. They were talking about when Jesus would leave. When Jesus would leave this life and when he would enter Eternity, when he would, be, would ascend to the Father. They were talking about that. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So what does he say there? Right, Elijah and Moses come down. There's this amazing happening going on. They're just there to pray. But all of a sudden, Jesus... Changes his face, as bright as the sun, his clothing is radiating glory. And now prophets and church fathers are showing up, right? People of God, the patriarchs are showing up and talking to Jesus. Who was Moses? Moses was the one that the law was given to. God gave Moses the law on tablets of stone. On Sinai, by the way. On Sinai, God gave Moses the law. 
And he was not... So Moses being there, he became synonymous with the law, synonymous with the Ten Commandments. When I think about the Ten Commandments, I can't help but think of Charleston Heston saying, let my people go, right? Like, let God's people go. Like, I, I, that's just what I think of, right? He's synonymous with the law. Moses shows up, symbolic of the law. The disciples see and perceive him. I don't know how they knew it was Moses, but they perceive him to be Moses. Proving that Jesus would be fulfillment of the ministry that was given to Moses. Moses was handing off the ministry of the law to Christ. Elijah was one of the miraculous prophets. So there was a lot of prophets. Some of them wrote stuff down. Elijah did a bunch of cool stuff. Go read in the Kings and Chronicles of some of the stuff that Elijah did. Right? And he was a type for all the prophets that would come before him. What were the prophets' job? They were proclaiming ultimately, yes, things in that day, but they were ultimately looking forward to the hope of the Messiah that was the ultimate prophecy, that one would come and make everything right. So Elijah was giving, given the ministry of prophecy. For Elijah to be there, synonymous with prophecy, synonymous with who would come that would make all things right, for Elijah to show up on the mountaintop was proof that Jesus was being given the ministry of that prophecy. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus would be a game changer for the law through Moses, and he would be a game changer of prophecy through Elijah because he was the fulfillment of both. What he was not was the removal of both. When we think about the Old Testament, we are tempted to think of Jesus as coming and putting a period at the end of the Old Testament sentence, aren't we? Right? A period, the way it, it functions is it closes a thought. You have a full, complete thought. When you have a complete sentence, you put a period and then you move on. Right? It's a stopping of that thought. Jesus didn't come to put a period at the end of the Old Testament. He didn't come to end it. He didn't come to do away with it. In fact, Jesus, by his own admission, says not one jot or tittle is going to pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. Right? So all of it. He didn't come to do away with it. What Jesus did was not to put a period on the law, on the prophets. He came to put an exclamation point on it. What do I mean by that? What does an exclamation point do? An exclamation point adds emphasis. An exclamation point provides passion to what you read. Whatever I just read, if there's an exclamation point at the end of it, I need to go back and reread that because it has power. There's a power that I miss there. There's, there's some emotion that I miss there. There's something going on that I don't recognize initially. Jesus didn't come to put an end to the law. He came to emphasize he came so that when we would look back at the law, everything that we see in the law finds its completion and emphasis in his work, in who he is. We find it in Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14. This is how Paul describes it since we have such a hope 
We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. The veil is removed. I have talked with y'all openly, shared with you my heart, on my journey in getting older. One of the things that proved to me that I was getting older was my need for my glasses. Having taken these things off, I can't see nothing. I can't see any of your faces. There's no way I could tell you who you are. I didn't know I needed glasses. I don't think really many people do. But somebody told me, hey man, I'm picking up things you ain't. So you probably need to go get something checked out. I walk in thinking everything's going to be fine. Gosh, what time is it? Okay. Um, I walk in thinking everything's going to be fine. And then they start to put the lenses in front of me. Better, worse, better, worse, better, worse. Read this line, read that line. And then they get to this prescription. And y'all, it's like I can see into the future. <laughs> I can read the imaginary line under the bottom line on that eye chart. It is a game changer. In my mind, I saw clearly. But it was not until I put in the lens, the corrective lens that I needed, that I realized how blind I really was. You know what the Old Testament people were doing? You know what the Jews were doing? They were putting together a really hazy picture. They didn't know they were blind. They were putting together this hazy picture of what the Messiah would be, what this kingdom would be like. And they didn't have all the details. They sure thought they knew what they were talking about. They had all the degrees on their wall, but they were still blind. What Christ is saying is, with me, with this inbreaking new kingdom, you are going to look at everything differently. Now, you're not going to see through your own eyes. You're not going to try to figure it out under your own understanding. You're going to respond in faith in me and my lenses. Seeing what I have done throughout history and seeing what I will do in the future throughout history will prove to you that I am the Messiah, that I am the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, Jesus brings clarity. Jesus brings understanding. And even to eyes that felt like they were healthy and could see fine, when we see the Old Testament through the lens of the Messiah, through the lens of Jesus, we have enormous clarity. The problem was not everybody did that. Not every, some people refused to see with that clarity, refused to receive the Messiah in, by, on his terms in the way that he says. And so for those people, the veil remains. They're still just as foggy as they ever were, thinking they were great, right? Probably missing vehicles and getting sideswiped by inches because they think they're fine. They think they can see perfectly fine. They don't need anything. All along, they're hazy. You see, Peter thought to hold on to this moment. He, well, I don't know what to say. And y'all know people like that. I'm one of those people that you fill up empty space with just words. 
Hey man, it's empty. It's kind of awkward. Man, uh, say something, Peter. Say something. Say something, right? And he's, oh, let's let's build some houses. You know, like that's that's what he does. Like let's build some 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 shacks and maybe we can live here for a little bit, right? But ultimately, why did he say that? Because he said he they was he was terrified. Why? Because every time that God's glory was revealed in the Old Testament, it was a thing of terror, right? People died. Things happened. It was not a good. That's why the. When Jesus is born, right? Luke 2, Jesus is born. Behold, I give you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And what does it say? Oh, they were sore afraid. Why? Because God's glory was a problem for sinful people in the Old Testament. They had not received the lenses of the finished work of Christ. And so he was terrified. Because you don't see God's glory and live. And so in your notes, God's glory used to cause terror of heart, but now it causes transformation of heart through Christ. It used to cause terror for God to show up. They were afraid of what would happen because they knew that they weren't glorious. They weren't perfect. They weren't holy. And so when God showed up, sin had to be dealt with. But through Christ transformation could occur. Thirdly and finally, the disciples will be made different. Jesus is different. The law and the prophets have been made different through Christ. And now the disciples are looking to a day in the not so near, in the not so far away future where they will be made different as well. Not only the disciples, but everyone who would have faith in Christ. Mark 9, 7 through 10. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Here it is again. Don't tell people what you've seen. Don't tell them that I'm the Messiah, right? The Son of Man has to be risen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. The rising from the dead would be the game changer, right? Don't tell anybody until I'm risen from the dead. And they still didn't understand it. They were still asking questions. It was awkward. They didn't want to ask Jesus because they just, they wanted to talk about something else because they were tired of Jesus saying things that they didn't understand, right? But Jesus said, don't tell anyone until I've risen from the dead. But from this point on, they knew that change was coming. Though they didn't fully understand and that the world wouldn't understand, they knew that they would not understand. They had not understood yet. God was bringing understanding. God was illuminating their hearts. Not only was the weight of God's glory on them, but now the brightness of God's truth, of God's glory was going to shine in their hearts hearts and life. They would no longer be in darkness. They would experience the glorious brightness of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3. From a man who has experienced the brightness of God. Literally on Damascus, the road to Damascus. Remember? He was thrown from his horse because of the brightness of God. Literally made blind for a time. Listen to Paul describe the life in Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. Not when one is born into the Hebrew family, but when one turns to the Lord, when one puts their faith, hope, and trust in Christ, the veil is taken away. The haziness, the fogginess, the lack of clarity is removed, and they can see clearly what is coming. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. When the Holy Spirit is given, our heart's desire will not be to work for God, will not be to accomplish for him, will not be to witness for him, will not be to come to church, will not be to go to small group, will not be to get involved in ministry teams. But when we come to Christ, when his Holy Spirit is given to us, our desire becomes simply beholding his face. We live in a state of worship to God. Why? Because... The veil has been removed. We see him clearly. We understand not just the weight of his glory and the importance and the sway that it has in our life, but it has shown into the dark recesses of our heart and it has made us clean. So we observe, we behold his glory and everything else comes from that posture. Everything else comes from that perspective to behold the glory of God. Glory used to produce separation. We couldn't see God's face. It wasn't allowed in the Old Testament. No one sees God and lives, right? So glory used to produce separation from God. But now, in light of what Christ has done, now produces sanctification to God through Christ. What is that? Getting closer to God every single day. Now closeness has been provided. And because we no longer live separated from God, we experience intimacy with him. And he draws us to himself. Living the Christian life isn't about obedience. It isn't about doing the right things or not doing the wrong things. It's about being with Jesus. It's about walking closer to him. And it's about experiencing his glory in our lives. This is the foundation. The foundation of the new covenant community. The Christian community. The new, the kingdom of God is a revelation of who Jesus is. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here, man, you don't have that relationship with Christ. If there's never been a time where you have confessed your sins to him, you have surrendered your heart and life to him, you have made him the Lord and Savior of your life, I want to 
call you to respond today, to experience not just the weight of his glory, but the brightness of his glory. Let it shine in your heart. Let him reveal the places in your life that you need to surrender to him. But he offers that today. What Christ offers the New Testament church is unlike what was offered in the old. Even at, to this point with the disciples, it was unlike what he'd offered to the disciples. What he offers is relationship with him. We don't deserve it, but he gives it. And so if today, if you want to respond to that invitation, take that first step in your new life with Christ. And I would love to talk to you. In just a moment, I'll say amen, and you can come find this center aisle. I'd love to talk to anybody that needs to know Christ as Lord and Savior today. I'd love to introduce you, Tim. I'd love to talk to you about how you can know Christ in a very real way. And I would ask you, when I say amen, for you to, to do that, for you to respond tangibly. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to help anyone that needs... Maybe you haven't been beholding his face. Maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but you haven't been beholding his face. Man, you've made your life about a lot of other things. Maybe you need to realign that. Maybe you need to confess some things, repent of some things. Maybe you need to find a spot here at this altar to lay down some things or to pray and intercede for somebody that you know that needs to lay down things in their life that are separating. Because we weren't created for separation. We are created for intimacy. Intimacy with a God that has pursued us to the uttermost. Father, have your will and way in our hearts. We love you. We thank you for how you draw us to yourself. I pray for the one that needs to respond. Maybe it's, maybe it's salvation. Maybe they need to get their baptism in order. Maybe they need to join. Maybe they just need to do business. They just need to pray. God, I just pray that we would do whatever it is that you are calling us to do in these next few moments. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing?